Welcome to Manage This, the podcast by project managers for project managers. This is our time to meet and talk about what's important to you in the fast-paced, sometimes puzzling, but always compelling world of project management. I'm your host, Nick Walker, and with me are two of the most compelling individuals I know, Andy Crow and Bill Yates. And Andy, it looks like we have another first here on Manage This. This is our first guest to actually have a star named after her. This is going to be fascinating to dig into today, Nick, and I'm looking forward to it, uh, not just from the project standpoint, but also just out of pure curiosity about this. This is really going to be interesting. Well, Tabitha Boyajian is joining us via Skype from Louisiana State University, where she's a professor and astronomer. She has a degree from the College of Charleston and a PhD from Georgia State University. She studied the sizes of nearby stars similar to the sun using Georgia State's Chara Array located at Mount Wilson Observatory in Southern California. She was awarded a Hubble Fellowship designed to encourage promising scientists in their independent research. She was the lead author of the 2015 paper titled Where's the Flux, which investigated the highly unusual light curve of the star known as Tabby's Star, named in her honor. Tabitha, it's a privilege to have you with us here on Matters This. Uh, thank you. It's nice to talk to you all. Now, before we get into the details of your project, I should say that I recognize the official name of Tabby's Star is KIC 8462852. But do you mind if, if we just continue <laughs> to call it Tabby's Star? Yeah, that, that's, that's certainly fine. Is, I mean, it's, it's, cool it doesn't it? really roll off your tongue when you say KIC eight four six two eight five two. It really right? doesn't. But, but so cool to have a star named after you. How did how did that come about? Uh, it, it it was it was purely by accident, I suppose. Um, uh, the 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 star got uh, well. It went. Uh, the story of it went a little viral, and a colleague of mine was talking to a reporter, and instead of saying KIC eight four six two eight five two. Uh, he said Tabby Star, um, and that reporter put it into print, and then it just kind of caught on after that. Well, you know, if, if stars can be celebrities, this one surely qualifies because it's been sort of the center of this mystery in science circles. It seems that every so often in the past few months, the star has become dimmer, a lot dimmer, sometimes for days at a time. Can you give us some background on the star and, and the current project surrounding it? Uh, yeah, well, it, it all started with the NASA Kepler mission. So this was a mission launched in 2009 to find planets around stars. And what it did with it is it stared at a single piece of sky for uh, four years straight, taking brightness measurements of over 100,000 stars in that one tiny field. And it was looking for the chance alignment of a planet to be crossing in front of a star. So we would see it periodically uh, dim the starlight that we're observing and um and it did that and it did that very very well and that and that's how this star was identified because this star was one of the you know uh, hundred thousand or so that it looked at and instead of seeing a, a periodic small drop in in the star's brightness with time uh, this star had very irregular drops in its brightness so so I, I know that there have been a lot of theories that have uh, come out about, you know, why this is happening. Some of them um, a little 
Maybe far-fetched. Oh, come on, Nick. <laughs> far-fetched? Alien megastructures? Dyson spheres? Okay, That's not you, far- you said it. You said it. <laughs> <laughs> or dust clouds or comets. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot, of, a lot of possibility. A dimmer here. switch. It's a big universe, <laughs> and that's the point. <laughs> It is. It is. So, so where do we stand with uh, with trying to figure out why it's actually dimming? Well, um, you know, for for a few years, we tried to learn everything about the star itself to see if we could find any clues to you know what could cause this this dimming that we saw in Kepler data, and we couldn't really settle on any explanation that was consistent with the data that we had in hand. So, uh, it, it took a little more thinking outside of the box, and that. That's where this whole idea of an alien megastructure came into mind, where well, you would have some artificially built structure that was, you know, perhaps, you know, very asymmetric and, and swirling around the sun with big solar panels of a sort. And, uh, and this is what was diminishing the star of light. Um, but still, even now, with, you know, the, you know, uh, boatloads of new data that we have coming in. As you mentioned, the stars started acting up, you know, a few months ago in the summer. Um, it's been very, very active again. We're, we're still kind of scrambling to find out, uh, what do you call it? We're still scrambling to find a good explanation to what is happening and what is going on. So the mystery continues. Yes. <laughs> Very much so. Um, there's, there's a, there's a, you know, the, a bunch of people working on it, and we've got a lot of data now, uh, thankfully, from, uh, you know, observers all over the world that are contributing to this really amazing project. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're starting to get our hands dirty with it, but it's, it's still going to take a while, I think. And, Tabitha, real quickly, how far away is this star? This star is about 1,400 light years away. Okay. So the the light that's coming to us right now that that our telescopes are receiving left that star system fourteen hundred light years or fourteen hundred years ago. Hmm. Tabitha, how if you have a diverse? It sounds to me like your project team is a number of scientists that are from all points on the globe. Are you? How do you? How are you guys forming a project team? And and are you the leader of this team? Uh, well, I mean, it, it kind of happened uh, very suddenly that, um, well, let me give you a little bit of background. Um, the data that we had from the star with the Kepler Space Telescope uh, didn't show or didn't have any indication of what we're observing with periodic. So we couldn't predict when it would like go crazy again. And so this was kind of a very long term, we didn't even know if it was going to go crazy again kind of project right, to just sit and kind of watch the star. And when it finally did do something, uh, there was a bit of scrambling, right, because we had a team of, of people that were interested in following this up, but we didn't know when it would, when it would actually happen. And, <laughs> and so putting everything together all at once wasn't um, uh, a... I wouldn't say very well thought out, but uh, it was it was definitely put together in a very um, organic way where it just kind of, okay, this is working best because this is what we have right now. Just a silly question <laughs> so, for you. Um, when you say go crazy, does that mean the star's dimming? 
Yeah, that's right. So um, basically, you know, with, with stars, you know, a, a normal star would just shine regularly and you would see a constant light output. And when I say go crazy, this, this star actually uh, dims in its brightness and these dimming events last from days to weeks. And so this is what I mean by going crazy. Right. And it's not, uh, there's no um, predictability to it. So it just dims for no apparent reason and then it's back to brightness. Fascinating. Yeah, that's right. Yep. It's, it's very irregular in, in when it decides to do what it does and, and, and the, the shapes and the duration of these events are also unpredictable. Like we, we don't know. Uh, we don't know pretty much anything in advance of what's going on. So who was the first person to notice this phenomenon or document it or write about it or uh, bring it up? Uh, in, in recent, like in, in recent days or ever, back, ever. <laughs> so uh, this is, this is kind of uh, a neat story, how this star was discovered um, because its signal is very huge. Like it sticks out like a sore thumb. Um, in you know the the Kepler data set, four years, uh, over a hundred thousand stars, a data point every thirty minutes is a lot of data you're sifting through. So you have computer algorithms that are sorting through it and finding what you want to find, right? So its main mission was to find planets, and then there's other things that you can do with the data set. Um, but all these things were uh, that we had our computer computer algorithms sorting through were you know what computers do exactly what you tell them to do. And so you tell them to find a periodic signal to find a periodic signal. And this was not a periodic signal. And so the way it was actually discovered was through a citizen science group called Planet Hunters. And this is uh, part of the universe collaboration where you, you know, set up some project uh, with, you know, real data from a NASA mission or, or, or any assortment of, you know, data sets. And call on the public's help to classify your data. And this just uses the human brain's uh, ability for pattern recognition. And so this is how this star was discovered, because it wasn't something that, you know, we're looking for with computers, but it was, you know, this giant signal that just, you know, popped out. It was very obvious if you have, you know, a person looking at it. Tabby, where are you in the course of this project? I mean, have, have you been able to, uh, to eliminate some possible causes for the dimming, or, or are you still basically, is it just completely open-ended? Well, we're, we're, we're hacking away at this, this giant puzzle right now. Uh, uh, when it was first discovered, we continued to collect data on it. Nothing really pointed us to what was, um, you know, an obvious, solution to what was going on and so we went on to um, to collecting more data and further analyses that have come out actually don't help the situation um, I think in retrospect they will help the situation but it's there there are observations that we've never seen stars do these kind of things before and so this, you know, kind of throws a wrench in any bad ideas you already had going for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> it kind of knocks them down a bit more. And so, you know, starting from the drawing board of, okay, well, now we have, you know, this assortment of very strange things that we don't know stars do at all. This one star is doing all of them. Hmm. Tabitha, I have a very practical question. Who's paying, mm -hmm. for, who's paying for this? You know, if I think about, 
you have uh, citizens, the public, who are helping participate and crunching all the data. You have great data mm-hmm. from NASA. Well, it's great data, but it's perplexing data. So now you have scientists from all over the world who probably have day jobs, but they're also trying to contribute to this project. So who's paying for it? Oh, and that gets uh, a bit complicated because there are so many uh, parts and contributions from people all around the world. Um, I can start with the monitoring. So we, we kind of were left in this position where uh, with the data that we had, we couldn't really learn any more, and so we needed to continue watching the star to figure out, you know, when it would do something again and what these events would look like and how long they would last and how deep they were and all all of these questions that we still had. Was there any, you know, eventually any uh, period that would come out of it, you know, to try and make sense out of this? And, uh, and so to do this, we started to monitor the star with a network of telescopes. So these are all robotic telescopes. They're all connected in a big network. And you can have continuous watching on the star's brightness at all times. And uh, this project was funded through a crowdfunding effort. So we actually oh. launched a Kickstarter project. <laughs> Uh, to, you know, collect data on the star and and see what would happen next. And and the project was, well, it was a nail-biter. It it came through at the last, you know, day or so. Um, But we ended up raising over $100,000 to, you know, collect data to, you know, watch this star and figure out what was going on. There are a lot of stargazers out there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's, you know, another thing. So it's like people could contribute in any way they could because they really wanted to help out in this this big mystery that seems to captivate everybody's imagination, right? So you have amateur observers from around the world who do have the facilities, the telescopes, the equipment to contribute data. And this is all done through an online forum with the American Association of Variable Star Observers. They organize all of these amateur observers to submit observations of this star. Um, and then, you know, we have the crowdfunding project for those who, you know, didn't have the facilities, but they still wanted to contribute in another way. So this is another source of, of you know, how you could get the data. And then there's astronomers from all around the world. This is kind of what we do. We all love mysteries. There's tons of mysteries in space. <laughs> and so it's not just this one, but, you know, if you have the opportunity to, you know, take a, a, a high-resolution spectrum of a star when it's in its active state, and you're at the telescope, yeah, you're going to point and, and shoot at the, uh, uh, at, the, at the source. And, you know, hopefully this will, all, all of these will, you know, come together at some point and help us figure out, learn more about the system. And you're having to synthesize all of this data from all of these different sources, correct? Do, they, do, do, do the data come into you in a sort of a common format? Not really. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, like like I said, um, you know, this was kind of like when it started being active again. It was uh, not a surprise, but you know, it it was. We didn't plan an event for when this would happen, and so um, I mean, there is there is a variety of data sets from just uh, photometric, like taking images to spectroscopy where you take in the star's light, you put it through a, a prism per se, and it, it, you know, it spreads out, you know, with, with color um, and some other, you know, various uh, observations. And so 
you know, we, we just asked the observers to, uh, you know, we had a, a data repository, just asked the observator, observers to, you know, drop the data there in whatever format, you know, they could. And, you know, if they wanted to continue working on it, that would, you know, we'd definitely welcome that. Or, you know, if it was just there for, you know, somebody else to, you know, go and do a project with, um, you know, then they could state that as well. But uh, so this, this allowed, you know, this kind of very widespread, you know, call for observations to kind of be organized in this way. And then, you know, if, even if you're an astronomer and, and you did want to work on it, um, you know, you could, you know, jump on any one of these data sets and help reduce it or analyze it or, you know, interpret it, any any of these angles. Well, I've got a, a Mead ETX uh telescope with a Celestron base, so I'm sure I can get you lots of useful data. <laughs> I wish. I probably can't even see this star, can I? <laughs> uh, with a small telescope, you could. So this is a, it's about a 12th magnitude star. And so with like a, you know, 10-inch telescope or so, you yep. could get just fine data with it. How about hmm. that? Um, mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question, uh, Tabitha. What would success look like for you? That's, that's one of the things you think of in project management is you sort of try and define success, but there are so many questions here, and, and this is really kind of open-ended in terms of, of that. What would it look like to you? Uh, I, I think we're at that point. I mean, I, I think... Uh, we, we won the lottery pretty much with this star actually doing something because it could have, it could have just never done anything after what we saw with the Kepler Space Telescope. And so, you know, we stuck with it for, you know, almost two years of the star doing absolutely nothing to, wow, it's doing something. And it didn't just do something once, it started doing something again a month later, and then a month later, and then a month later. And so I think we really, that right there, <laughs> I mean, that's really luck that it actually did something, but I'd call that a success, right? I mean, we have, you know, um, done everything that we said that we wanted to do. We have all this data. This, you know, definitely calls, motivates us to continue observing the star. It's not going to, you know, just the motivation isn't going to drop, you know, in a few years. I think that, you know, now that, you know, it, it does act, you know, we know that it does act up again, we can, you know, continue using this momentum for the next decade or so. And I'm sorry, this has nothing to do with project management, but my curiosity <laughs> is just causing my brain to rev up here. Do you have enough data that you're getting from this? And uh, do you have accurate enough data to see if there's something obscuring the light from the star? I mean, is there something passing in between the earth and the star to cause this? Or is that even a, a sort of a ridiculous question? That's not that's not ridiculous at all. Like it, I, I, we're at the point where yes, we have that data. Uh, something is you know coming in front of the star and blocking the star's light. Uh, what that something is, we're not really quite sure what it is. Where that something is, we're not really quite sure what that is either. Because you have a lot of different different observations that. You know, at first glance, this would indicate that you have some sort of dusty debris disk around the star. So maybe the star just formed, or maybe there are some planet collisions or an asteroid belt or something like that. But all of these scenarios uh, um, or, or would have a, you know, if you have any kind of dust around the star, you would have what we call an infrared excess. 
So this dust would heat up by the star's light and glow in the infrared. And we don't see this in our observations. And so that's kind of like the first knee jerk, like, oh, well, it's dust. And it looks like dust, but getting dust to be invisible in the infrared is something that we still haven't quite figured out what to do yet. Right. So we know something is blocking the light. We don't know where it is. We don't, uh, yeah, we don't know where it is or what it is, like if it's comets or asteroids or, you know, maybe some dust cloud in between, like dead in between us and the star. So maybe it's not even orbiting the star. Um, but still having that, that constraint where you're not seeing any glow in the infrared is, is, um, it, it kills a lot of these ideas pretty quickly. Wow. Hmm. Tabitha, one of the other questions that we love to ask people like you, uh, how did you identify your key stakeholders? And how do, you, how do you figure out how much information to provide to these different groups to keep them, uh, to give them enough data to move forward, but not too much? Uh, how did you go about that? Uh, I will. I will need you to define stakeholders. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Being um, a scientist, we don't really use that word. So yes, yes, yes. So we see a stakeholder as anyone who holds a stake or an interest in our project. So those individuals mm-hmm. that are interested in the project or could influence the project or in the outcome. Yep. So you've got a lot of stakeholders out there in in people who contributed to this, but you also have people that you're accountable to. Um, you have other scientists. All of those people would be stakeholders here. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you know who the important people on this project are? You know, and and how do you communicate with them? Well, um, I I definitely I, I've I've come to hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is a, this is a tricky question. I guess there's there's different levels, right? So we, we have the, the stakeholders, say, for the Packers for the Kickstarter project, right? right. Um, they, they they get the privileges that are associated with the project itself, right? So each of these events that we observe, they get to name them, right? They get to nominate names and name them, kind of like we name asteroids, right? So it kind of gives mm-hmm. it a personal feel to the, the whole project and what's going on. And, and they get special updates through, you know, email newsletters and that sort of thing. Um, but there, there's also a very, uh, there's a movement to make all these processes in science very public. We don't, we don't want to seem like we're hiding anything. And so we also update a, a blog webpage sort of thing with the data updates. So the whole public can see that, um, you know, we put it out on Twitter and, and that sort of thing. And so that's another something that we do, but um, you know, trying to communicate within a big group. We've also found that email sucks. <laughs> um, my email inbox is <laughs> is a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we just um, we've we've fallen to using a, the application Slack, which is like a glorified yes. instant messenger system. And, we use it and, here. Uh, yeah. You use it there. Yeah, I think it's it's been really wonderful for a project like this. We can just share updates and, you know, kind of organize things by, you know, each channel and things like that. And everything becomes very transparent uh, in that way and, and, you know, news that's going on and things like that. So, um, yeah, there's several different routes that, you know, I guess that, you know, we use for communication with stakeholders and, and this business. <laughs> hey, Tabitha, you mentioned, of course, that you're a scientist, but 
you're also a project manager. Uh, how, how does a scientist fit into that? Is that a role you're comfortable in? Uh, yes and no, I would say. Uh, I haven't had any project management, like formal project management training, other than my training as being a scientist and leading projects in that respect. And, you know, reading through your webpage and, and the testimonials, I'm like, wow, I, I would actually probably benefit from, you know, just a little bit of training in that respect. Um, but, uh, you, you know, we, we do have, you know, a, a bit of, you know, since our, our graduate work, just, you know, leading uh, projects. Like, you know, you write proposals, you identify collaborators who could help you with the kind of science question that you want to answer. You're developing a project, you know, what kind of data sets will help you answer the question. You know, the analysis techniques, all of these, you know, steps kind of reflect what, um, a project manager, say, in a business setting would actually do, but this is, I guess, on a more broader scale. Um, I've identified that, yeah, maybe I'm not doing things as efficiently as I would have with formal training, you know, trying to collect, you know, uh, data from, you know, hundreds of observers and that sort of thing. Um, and so that's, that's definitely, you know, something that I would have benefited for formal training in that respect. You know what, Tabitha, it's funny because um, project management and science do have uh, one big commonality, and you touched on it in your in your comment a moment ago, is that they both follow a process. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there's a method to, to the madness. There's a method to gathering the information and uh, collating it and assessing it and and so forth. So I think uh, I think your training as a scientist probably has served you very well in this. It sounds like. Let Let me ask you one question. Uh, you've gone through this big project. It's gotten a lot of visibility. Uh, it's been fascinating. I've followed it out of just utter fascination as I've been reading all of this. And I I kind of assumed you were gonna deflate the balloon and say, Oh no, we figured out it's a dust cloud. But now you've <laughs> you've got me back to redlining on curiosity here what what do you think has been your biggest challenge in 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 sort of managing this whole effort so far just you personally what's been what's been the one thing that's kind of kept you up has it been working with team members or working with different stakeholders around the world or the pressure of it or what well yeah everything that you mentioned <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, I mean it was a big change for me. Uh, in the sense of scale, like, you know, I tell you, you know, we get kind of get, you know, modest project manager training, um, you know, throughout our careers. Uh, but these are like, you know, smallish projects with, you know, maybe 20 people max, but it's normally just a handful of people. And this, the scale of this one is very large. And, um, and so I think this transition from that and, you know, just having to kind of let go of some things and calling on help to, you know, do things that you normally would have done, right? So, there, you know, lots of people are volunteering to help in many different ways. Um, you know, that was that was a challenge, trying, you know, just trying to give up that, you know, oh, but I normally do that, but okay, you know, that, that job is, you know, will be much better done if it's managed by, you know, a person instead of me doing like, you know, 50,000 things. Um, so that's, you know, just kind of letting go of some things like that has been a challenge. And um, my, just managing my schedule is also, 
I, I don't think I've quite handled that very well. And I, I don't think I'm quite there on that actually now, <laughs> but, uh, but it's all a learning process on, you know, how to, uh, you know, interact with the media and, um, you know, even, you know, colleagues or students or that sort of thing. And so prioritizing, you know, how I spend my time is definitely a challenge. And then what to do when the men in black show up. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tabitha, I have a question about when I think of the uh, diversity of the contributors, those that are working with you to try to solve this mystery, uh, I I sympathize as I think about your, how do you figure out who to direct onto what piece of this puzzle they need to attack? So you have people that have specific knowledge, and then you have people that have incredible passion for this, and you're trying to quarterback this and put the right person with the right knowledge, the right skill set, the right passion, you know, focusing on one piece. Um, what, mm-hmm. do you have any advice for others who are trying to figure out the same thing of where to put people in terms of, um, the things that need to get done on, to solve this mystery? Uh, well, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And I, I think I'm, I, you know, I'm very lucky because I'm surrounded by awesome people just to start out with and <laughs> And so, um, and, and, and not just, you know, awesome and, you know, the respect that they know what they're doing, but they're really enthusiastic about it too. Right. And, um, you know, as, as an educator, you know, we all have students that we want to train and this is all like, you know, things that are, you know, it's, it's what we do and what we get excited about. And so I'm, I just, I got really lucky on that. I have this great team that, you know, I work with. There's not that many astronomers around the world anyway. I think there's probably like 6,000 of us. And so, you know, now I pretty much know everybody, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I got lucky on that. And so I don't really have a, you know, a, a winning kind of statement on, on how to identify these team members. Tabitha, I, I've got to ask you this question. Uh, you know, maybe it's the elephant in the room, but, but, but you, you mentioned earlier that you, you can't really rule anything out in terms of what might be causing this star to dim, uh, that is doing things that you've never seen before. So how possible is it that there is some kind of alien life form <laughs> out there? Yeah, you knew I was going to ask that. <laughs> how possible is it that, that, that that's, what's going on out there, that they're building something that's getting in the way. Uh, they're building some sort of sphere around the star. What to... All right. As a scientist, she can't possibly answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, go, it, you know, it's, it's just, okay, just, just so tell me what you really think. Okay. Came, right, right. This idea came from, you know, my colleague, Jason Wright, uh, who's at Penn State. And, and he, he was writing a paper at the time, uh, uh, testing the idea that was proposed uh, a decade before um, by an astronomer, Luke Arnold, that said that Kepler's extreme precision, like the, the precision photometry that was coming out of this mission, could detect, you know, these or artificial structures circling around stars. Uh, and so what, you know, what Jason Wright did is he said, okay, well, Kepler's made some amazing discoveries of things that we never thought of, you know, that we'd see. And he gave examples of each one of those, you know, why it was very, very weird. It was the first time we ever saw it. Uh, 
and, you know, why it's interesting in the study viewpoint for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and uh, what the natural explanation for each one of these is. And so, you know, they're all very odd observations, but they all had a natural explanation. And then this one didn't really fit into that same, uh, you know, that, that same analysis because, yeah, it's really odd, but we didn't have a natural explanation for it. And so the mindset that we put forth is that it's an interesting target to set up, right? Uh, it's very cheap to look at, right? If you want to look for leaked communication of, of that sort, you know, there's ongoing monitoring programs to actually do this uh, and search for uh, these signals if it was some sort of, you know, very large structure um, from, you know, some very advanced civilization. Um, and so maybe I lost track of your original point here, <laughs> but like it was, uh, it, it was a scientific paper like published in a reputable astronomy journal, right? That, you know, tested this idea. And it's, it's not something that should be taboo in a sense. Um, even though it is. And that's a really interesting point. So people who work on astronomy and doing exoplanets, uh, finding exoplanets, finding Earth outside of our own solar system, going around other stars, right? The the main objective, like we want to find ET, right? right? We want to find <laughs> a rocky planet around another star. We want to find it in the Goldilocks zone where it can form water. We want to you know, know that there's plate tectonics going on this planet. You know, we want to know if there's any signs of life or oxygen in the atmosphere, these sorts of things, um, all working towards this goal where you have another group of scientists, excuse me, you have another group of scientists also observing the sky, right? And they're looking for the end result. This is study, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. You know, these two groups, astronomers and folks that do study, they don't mix, right? We don't go to the same conferences. <laughs> no. and we don't read the same papers. This is very, very weird. Groups in the bloods. You know, we all want the same thing in the end. You know, one is kind of going for the end result. One is kind of, you know, hacking, you know, down this line of, okay, we're well, finding planets and, you know, finding uh, biosignatures and, and this sort of thing. Uh, but we all want the same, same result. But there's, there's this sort of taboo that you can't mix one with the other. Mm. And that's, you know, something that, you know, a fairly... You know, Cook Group now is trying to work uh, towards, you know, merging these two fields because, you know, we are actually going for the same result. We shouldn't be ignoring, you know, each angle. I'd say you've respects. built quite a bridge there. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. definitely. And yeah. it's all come together with Tabby Star. <laughs> Tabitha, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Before we let you go, how can people follow the progress of this project? You can follow, we have a website, uh, com, and that has a blog where we post uh, somewhat daily updates on the data that's coming out and things like that. And also, uh, you know, Twitter is the way everyone communicates these days, so you can search for the ha hashtag TabbyStar, or um, I, I should note that uh, the more formal way of uh, referencing the star is Boyajin Star. Um, and that came up after uh, a, a bit of chatter on the thought that all objects that are named after somebody uh, have their last name 
as the, mm. you know, as what we name them. So we have, you know, Captain Star and Bernard Star and these sort of things. And um, if I'm, you know, Taddy Star for this one, it, it should actually be Boyage and Star. And, and folks had pointed out that this was a bit sexist that, you know, since I was a woman, first woman to have a star named after them, and it's their first name, this, you know, it should follow convention right. pretty much. So uh, hashtag Boyage and Star. Uh, but people still use in colloquial settings Tabby Star because my name just sucks to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so following Twitter and, and our website blog, there's also a really great discussion forum that we've created because I get um, uh, excess of emails from very enthusiastic uh, amateurs or just anybody who just have questions or thoughts or, you know, want to, you know, contribute in some way. Um, and so we've we've established an, an official discussion page on Reddit. There's a subreddit for this star, so um, you can look that up. And that's that's a really great place that has a whole bunch of FAQs. There's uh, a great list of moderators that you know help facilitate the discussions and and these sort of things. And so that's also a really good resource for folks to look into. Well, Tabby, we have a special gift for you um, just for taking the time to talk with us. It's a special Manage This coffee mug. I recognize this pales in comparison to having a star named after you. But uh, nevertheless, (laughs) I I hope you'll use it. Well, thank you. It's been delightful to talk to you guys. Likewise. I'll tell you, I've, I've learned a lot because, yeah, project management is definitely not easy, especially when you're kind of thrown into it. Probably did some things um, very untraditionally, uh, but it but it is doable if you surround yourself with with great people and you kind of let go of of responsibilities that you're normally used to doing. But you know, just to try and save your your <laughs> save your you know peace of mind for that matter. Well, we admire what you're doing, Tabitha, and I got to tell you, you had us at Robotic Telescopes. (laughs) 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 Thanks again, Tabitha, for being with us. Andy and Bill, fascinating discussion. Thanks so much. We here at Manage This want to do all we can to keep you current on what's going on in the project management world. And when it comes to earning PDUs, we've got your back. You've already earned professional development units just by listening to this podcast. To claim them, go to velocityteach.com slash manage this. Click the button that says claim PDUs and then just walk through the steps. That's all for this episode. Join us again on December 19th for our next podcast. In the meantime, you can tweet us at manage underscore this if you have any question or comment about this or any other episode of our podcast or about project management certifications. Until next time, keep calm and manage this.